It's good to be with you. Uh, happy Sunday. Uh, we're in the middle of our study on the seven hits from the Jewish songbook. The right song, as we know, can take you right back to that place. Whatever happened then brings it right to memory. And we're starting to implant some of those psalms in our brains so that hopefully they will do the same things for us. So that the next time you read a particular psalm, you'll think, oh, I remember what was going on. That was the 2020 uh, pandemic when I was studying that psalm. And this is how God got us through that. And these are some of the good things that we learned from it. And this is how God revealed himself in a personal way. I know that God has a way of doing that. And it's gonna be imprinted on our brains that certain things were happening that were very out of the ordinary as we start to see some of these Psalms several years from now. Next week, if you're reading up ahead of time, as I've been encouraging you to do so, hopefully reading through each Psalm once each day for all the days leading up to that next week. And so next week's gonna be Psalm 95, which is a response of blessing. Today, May 17, Psalm 67, let the nations be glad, or in some translations, let the nations rejoice. Uh, Dr. Pipe has done a great job of exhorting us through scripture, helping get us into the frame of mind, knowing what the context, the broad context is for this particular psalm, because it was God's intent that all the nations would be blessed so that everybody could praise him. Uh, let me start with this. I'm sure that you've seen some of these uh, war movies, soldier movies, and in almost every good soldier movie, you're going to get to a point in that movie when there are a bunch of guys and they're pinned down, they're surrounded, there are enemies all around them, and it just seems like all hope is lost. And then all of a sudden, there's a tight shot on one of the soldiers who looks up and he starts to smile and then he starts to cheer. Now, if you didn't know the reason for that, you'd have to think, why is this guy cheering? Has his cheese slid off his cracker? Is he going nuts because of the, the stress of this event? And then somebody else looks at where he's looking and he, he starts to cheer as well. And then pretty soon you hear the, the drone of airplanes in the distance in the sky and the drone gets louder and louder. And you understand that the air cavalry is on its way. Their deliverer draweth nigh. And it becomes very obvious that they're happy even though they haven't been delivered yet, but because they know their deliverer is coming, They've got support and there's hope. That's something that I think sets us up for what's happening as we look at this particular Psalm, Psalm 67. We think, why is this Psalmist cheering? In the thousand year period in which all these Psalms were written, you can see time and again, how Israel was like those soldiers. It would be a tiny country. They seemed to be the weakest in the area much of the time. They were very often surrounded by enemies. I mean, coming at them literally from all sides sometimes. And yet God in his infinite love and protection saw a way to keep Israel going. And because they always looked at the way that God supplied deliverers for them, including people like Moses who delivered them out of the bondage of slavery in Egypt. And then we'd see the same theme starting to come about more and more as it starts to point ahead into future then we start to know that they're talking about a bigger deliverer, a more powerful deliverer, one who would deliver once and for all time. And that's where we start to see some of the things that happen in the threads that we studied a few years ago in the covenants, because we see all the covenants pointing ahead to the Messiah. So why is the psalmist cheering? Why is he saying, let the nations rejoice, even though Israel is very often surrounded by enemies? Because their deliverer is coming. 
I always try to feed you one really good song, and many of them have been coming out of my past because we're talking about hits from the past. So my hit from the past for you, look up on YouTube, My Deliverer is Coming by Rich Mullins. Great song, and it fits perfectly with what we're talking about today. What we also see happening in this song is that the psalmist starts to write in a way that's a little different than we see some of the psalms. Many of the psalms sound like they're talking about an immediate problem that needs to be dealt with at the local level. And that's true, and that happens a lot. But every now and then, we start to see something that creeps into some of these psalms, as we see in Psalm 67, and we see that he's not talking about just a temporary rescue. It's not just a localized event. Some of the verses that uh, begin to pop up, including this particular psalm, makes it look like we're looking at a very far-reaching event. And that happens with the prophets. I know that uh, Mark Elwell, who's been doing a great job teaching, by the way, and I did hear your audio this morning, Mark, even though I couldn't see your lovely face. He's teaching to us about Gideon from Judges. And here's a good shameless plug for that. If you haven't signed in at 9.30 to listen to Mark Elwell teach, you need to give it a shot. He's a good teacher. But it's not just a temporary rescue, and we see that all through the Old Testament. There's this ongoing, forward-thinking, messianic look ahead into the future. And we start to see that happening in Psalm 67. And we see that everyone, everyone, say it with me out loud where you are, everyone on the planet who wants to be rescued will be rescued. It is a pervasive event, and it's one that's not exclusive, it's inclusive. Yes, God is exclusive in terms of his worship. He demands that we worship him exclusively. But on the flip side of that, he offers his salvation, his deliverer to everyone on the planet. That's not exclusive, that's inclusive. So I think you should, that's a part of this shift in our mentality that we need to be thinking about as we read through the Psalms, thinking about the shift that allows us to see God as being inclusive because he offers salvation to everyone. So I want to read this to you. It's not a terribly lengthy psalm, and I want you to just let the words pour over you. Our faith comes by hearing, and sometimes it's good to just hear the psalm being read. Psalm 67, and I'm reading from the NIV version. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine on us so that your ways your meaning God, your ways may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. May the peoples praise you, God. May all the peoples praise you. May the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you rule the peoples with equity and guide the nations of the earth. May the peoples praise you, God. May all the peoples praise you. The land yields its harvest, God, our God, blesses us. May God bless us still, so that all the ends of the earth will fear him. May God illuminate his word through his Holy Spirit, and may he show us what this psalm meant to the original audience, what it means to us today, what we can learn about our deliverer, and why it's good news to all of us today. Psalm 67, let's dive in and just look at this line by line in this psalm. May God be gracious or merciful, depending on the translation, to us, and bless us and make his face shine on us. It's interesting because this is actually a paraphrased quote from a previous song. 
It's something that was actually a priestly benediction. Now, what do we normally do when we give a benediction? That's at the end of a service. So the end is coming at the beginning. And I think there's purpose to that. It's purposeful because the psalmist is starting to look ahead into history as though something has already happened. We see that tense happening, a present tense, or even a past tense in some cases, as we'll see a few verses later. He's speaking as though something magnanimous, something magnificent has already taken place, and so he's counting on it with surety, with absolute confidence. Now, here's the original line, which was paraphrased in this psalm. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. That sounds very much like some of the very original lines in that new song that I put on our closed face group page just last night called The Blessing. If you haven't seen it, oh my goodness, you need to listen to it. It brings me to tears. It's so powerful because it's right out of scripture. And in this time of pandemic, when the fears can reign pretty high and people can be very anxious about a lot of things, man, it sure feels good to know that God wants to bless his people. And he's just pouring it out. So that's what this is a quote from. It's actually a quote from a quote. Those who sang Psalm 67 would have known the original. So once they started hearing an echo of that original blessing that they would have heard at the end of many of their services, their worship services, almost like when we say, God is good all the time, all the time, God is good. It becomes rote to them. It becomes very, very familiar. That would have been familiar for these worshipers. And so he paraphrases it. He puts the end at the beginning and immediately people perk up and they're thinking, oh, okay, I see something's a little different about this, but it's also familiar. Where's he going with this? I think that's interesting. Well, the psalmist reached back to an earlier hit. And interestingly, I, I haven't seen this with our congregation like I did at a previous congregation where I preached uh, a couple of decades ago. But there were all, a lot of people who were starting to become a little bit uh, anxious and some even offended that there would be modern writers who would start to add choruses to existing hymns. For example, amazing grace, how sweet the sounds, and then my chains are gone, I've been set free. You know that one? We do that often now, so it's pretty familiar to us. But I remember when that first started to come out and Chris Tomlin had added a new uh, refrain to Amazing Grace, and there were probably some people around that were saying, well, that's just not right. You can't add to that. Is that that's like adding something to Scripture. Well, not really. It's adding something to a song that's based on scripture, which is a good thing. But I think we should know, just in case we're looking for some biblical justification for that, that's exactly what the psalmist of Psalm 67 was doing from something that took place in Numbers. The very first thing this song does is ask God for mercy. He shifts things around in the way he paraphrases. So he's asking God right out of the chute, right out of the gate, he's asking God, for mercy. Why is that important? Because they knew in their worship practices that it's impossible, it's just fruitless to ask for favor from God if there is not first forgiveness. It would be silly for us to, to be willfully sinning against God, doing things that we know would make him terribly angry and upset and sad because of our behavior, and yet for us to pause and go to praying and saying, God, I sure hope you'll bless me. It doesn't make sense. And they knew that. So they knew that the first thing they needed to do was to allow God to search their hearts and to confess sin before they ever started to exalt Christ in praise and worship. And so praise for them was a response. We're going to see that even in more detail next week with the psalm we'll be looking at. But it's fruitless to ask for favor from God 
if there is no forgiveness. It's an important overarching theme that we need to think about because that's why God needed to send the ultimate rescuer, the redeemer, the deliverer, Jesus Christ, because he needed to take care of that, the forgiveness problem, because all of us need forgiveness. So in liturgical worship, if some of you grew up, let's say, in a more liturgical uh, type of uh, faith background, you probably began with certain things like a moment of quiet, maybe read through the prayer book as you're waiting for the service to begin, time of reflection, time of introspection, and then almost always they would start right off the bat with confession of sin. And there would be prayers of confession, perhaps a song related to confessing, and then a petition for mercy, a request of God for his mercy upon us. That's not a bad thing to have at the beginning of a worship time. Because I don't know about you, but when I approach God on a Sunday morning, when I'm coming into worship, I know for a fact that I've got stuff that I need to confess to him. Things that would have taken place even earlier, perhaps that morning, as I was frustrated, maybe because the Zoom meeting started to crash. And I needed to say, God, forgive me for some of the thoughts that went through my brain. Help me to center in on you and thank you that your forgiveness is available the moment that it comes out of my mouth. Mercy first and then rejoicing. That's what we see starting to happen in Psalm 67. You can't rejoice about being rescued when you know you're still pinned down by the enemies of your own sin. Sometimes we see ourselves as those soldiers that are pinned down and you're surrounded by enemies. And sometimes the enemies, as I've mentioned a couple of weeks ago, are our own thoughts, our own negative thoughts, some of the doubts that we might have. And so sometimes we need to first confess those things to God and get them out into the open because even by voicing them, we set them free so that God can deal with them. And then he can forgive us and set us on the right path so that we can start to really enter into his presence in worship. But as soon as we do that, the minute we've confessed, we start to become aware that our rescuer is in sight. We see that all through the Psalms as well. I cried out unto the Lord and God heard my cry. We see that again and again. And that's exactly what happens when we worship. As soon as we cry out and say, God, I recognize that I am a sinner and I'm in need of forgiveness, we see our rescuer is drawing nigh. Verse 2, so that your ways may be known on all the earth, so salvation among all the nations. So that is a phrase of purpose. What is the so that? Well, show us mercy. Make sure that we're blessed, that your face will shine upon us or smile upon us. Give us your smile. Give us your approval. Give us your favor so that we can hunker down in our own churches and never talk to the rest of the world about it because we're spiritual elitists. Is that what this psalm is saying? No, of course not. That is what some people might do with the forgiveness they've been given. They may cloister themselves away from the world and hide away from them and never engage people who don't know God as we do. And yet that's not at all what this psalmist is saying. He's saying, the reason we need your favor, the reason we need your forgiveness, your mercy, is so that our response to that would help become a witness to the entire world, so that your ways may be known on all the earth, so that your salvation can be among all the peoples and all the nations. It's offered freely. Also, the way he's worded this in the Hebrew is really unique because he's starting to use the kinds of phrases that say this is something that he's offered freely. It's not compulsory. God doesn't demand that you love him back. He never does. He's a gentleman. He'll always invite, but he'll never push. 
He's like that hound of heaven that will nip at your heels, but he's doing it lovingly because he wants the love relationship between his people and himself, but he'll never force himself. Psalm 67, three, may the peoples praise you, God. May all the peoples praise you. Joy and I, as you know, went to Israel. Thank you for sending us a couple of years ago. And we went to the Jordan River. And when we got there, we noticed that there were several different stations where people could go with their groups. So there could be many groups all witnessing baptisms simultaneously. It's a pretty incredible sight. We heard some people speaking in what I think was Chinese, may have been Korean, but I'm pretty sure it was Chinese, right next to us. Down the way, we could hear some Hispanic language, maybe from South American country, I'm not exactly sure. Somewhere else down the road, I heard something that sounded Scandinavian to me. And what we realized was that even though we couldn't understand the actual verbiage coming out of the leader's mouths as they were baptizing, you know what we could understand? The picture that these people were presenting to the witnesses there, because everybody was doing the same thing. They were getting dipped down under the water, and they were coming back up out of the water, and they were rejoicing. Well, what is that? It's a living sermon. It's the exact same thing that Jesus did, and as his example and command to us that we would do to identify with him, it's a living sermon that you can understand in every single language. And that's what really cool to us is that I recognize if you're baptized in a Christian faith, and if you're baptized especially by immersion that way, it shows the death, burial, and resurrection, it's pretty clear what you're talking about there. And so may all the peoples praise you, God. May all the peoples praise you. We saw that starting to take shape in microcosmic form right there at the Jordan River in Israel. Verse four, may the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you rule the peoples with equity. I highlighted those words in bold, with equity, and guide the nations of the earth. The term with equity actually refers to a measuring device, kind of like either a plumb line or some sort of a measuring device that's been carefully calibrated so that it remains the same every single time. Now, you know how some people would measure horses' heights by hand? You would say, well, this, this horse is 40 hands high. I don't know how much that would be. I don't know if that's a big horse or a small horse. Some of you figure that out for me, would you? Maybe I've just talked about a gigantic horse. But somebody's hand might be different. Now, Callie, put your hand right over here. That's Callie's hand, and that's my hand. If you were to measure a horse with Callie's hand and with my hand, that horse may come across as being a different height that you would be measuring. But with God's equity, with his measuring stick or with his plumb line, it's going to be the same every single time. Why is that? Because God never changes. He's equitable in his justice because he never changes. And so that plumb line is always going to be spot on. And you can always count on his justice being fair to everybody. I don't have all the information. I heard uh, a story from one young family had a couple of boys and this is not i'm not telling on my kids from south carolina this time this was another family but they did have two boys and the mom said that she was in one room and she heard some scuffle in the other room and she heard a yell and a yelp and a cry and you know how parents do you rush in trying to figure out what just happened and is there any bleeding do i need to stop you know do i need to go to the emergency room this time what's going on and she started to ask a couple of questions and immediately, the smaller child, the younger of the two boys, said, but he grabbed my foot and pulled me down, and I bumped my head. And she starts to ask, did you? And so the older child, the older boy says, 
well, yeah, but, she goes, no, no, yeah, buts. If you pulled his foot and he fell down and bumped his head, you need to go to timeout. And so there was justice being meted out immediately. But then she was in the other room and she heard them talking as the older child was in timeout. <laughs> and the older child was saying to the younger child, but I was trying to keep you from falling because you were climbing up on top of that bookshelf. And the mom thought, oh, maybe this was a rush to judgment. Maybe I didn't have all the information necessary to mete out a real fair justice. And so she had to change her tune just a little bit. Here's my analogy. Okay, I've had several people, and I've read about many people, who have asked tough questions about the Bible. Some people look at some Old Testament passages, and quite frankly, and I've, I said this to one person honestly, now this is a pastor speaking, it'd be a lot easier on me if some of those passages just weren't in the Bible. Because it would be a lot easier for me to say, yes, it's very, very clear here, and yet some of those passages I'd like to say, man, I wish I had a really ready answer for you on that one. I don't. I don't quite get it. And it's troubling to me as it is troubling to you. I understand that. But I have to trust that God, whose justice is perfectly fair every single time because it's measured by the same measurement of justice every single time, that I don't have enough information, but he does. So I have to trust that one day, some of those questions that I have in my mind are going to be answered. And I think that we need to trust him as the perfect parent, that if it's in there, that it's in there for good reason. And sometimes I'll discover it while I'm on earth because I'll see other things in scripture that give me some clues and I'll think, oh, well, no wonder this happened. And yet sometimes I'm just not gonna know until I get to heaven, but that's okay because I trust him. I trust him implicitly as the perfect parent. I may not have all the facts related to a particular passage of scripture, but how can I trust God? What should give me the ability to trust him that he is accurate and fair? I can trust him because I know that God demonstrated his equitable rule through the atonement. His atonement proves to me exactly how he blends together his love and his judgment because judgment had to be meted out for sin. And yet he did so by taking our place on the cross. So there's both mercy and justice happening simultaneously. That's how I know he's just and loving, which is why I can trust, even though I don't understand everything about the Old Testament, I still trust him. I trust him. So there's reason for rejoicing. Some of you folks that are uh, perhaps a little older in age, you are mature as I am, would remember a group, an acapella group called Glad. And they had a song called Be Ye Glad. It was like the title track of their big album. And some of the words were, oh, be ye glad. Oh, be ye glad. Every debt that you ever had has been paid up in full by the grace of our Lord. Be ye glad, be ye glad, be ye glad. I slaughtered it, but that's kind of how it went. They sound a lot better. Look it up on YouTube. That's your second song. I've given you two freebies now from hits from the past. You can look it up on YouTube. Be ye glad by the group Glad. There's reason for rejoicing. They picked up on this psalm and used a paraphrase of it, similar to what Psalm 67 psalmist did by paraphrasing from a priestly benediction from Numbers. There's reason for rejoicing because our debt has been paid in full and that's what happened on the cross. So verse five, verse five restated verse four. And it's restated because it means this is important. 
you know, uh, when Jesus would say, truly, truly, or verily, verily, I say to you, you know what that means? It means, hey, listen up. This is vital. This is really important. That's just like when you have a kid that's running into you when you're trying to get some work done, moms who are working from home, and they say, mom, 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 mama, mom, mom, mom. You know why they do that? Because they think that what they've got to share is important. And I'm sure it probably is. And I'm sure that you're probably just ecstatic to have them come to you with their problems and that you would say, oh, honey, anytime you need me, I'm right here for you. And of course, all that was caught on your Zoom meeting with your boss. So that's a wonderful thing. Psalm 67, five, verse five restated means this is important. May the peoples praise you, God. May all the peoples praise you. I think that when we sing a repetition, sometimes I've heard people say that they get a little tired of repeated choruses that just kind of repeat the same phrase over and over again. I'm going to disagree with that on one point. Sometimes the psalmist would do the very same thing. So just like people like Chris Tomlin can add a chorus to Amazing Grace, we too can continue to repeat a phrase that's important enough to repeat, like in the blessing that I was talking to you about, because they really get into it. And at the very end, they're just repeating again and again, God is for you. He is for you. He is for you. He is for you. Why do they repeat it so much? Because he is. <laughs> it's because we need to get that. God is not against you. He's for you. If he's asking you to give up something, why would he do that? It's because he's for you. It's because you can trust that anything he's going to provide in replacement for what you gave up, it's going to be countlessly, vastly better than what you had that you put your faith in or put your trust in in trying to give you satisfaction. He's for you. God is for you. It's worth repeating. Verse six, here's something that we see evidenced often in the Old Testament and especially in the Psalms. The land yields its harvest. God, our God, blesses us. The land God prepares provides for contentment. That's not in the Psalm. The first line is from the Psalm. The second one is my commentary on it. The land that God prepares for us, he started preparing all the way back in the Garden of Eden. He provided a place and provision and his presence, all three of those Ps, it makes for good alliteration, which is good preaching. A place, his presence, and provision. He did that. He provided everything they needed to thrive under his authority. So what happens if all of a sudden they say, yeah, but I don't want his authority? Well, then he withdraws his presence. It happened with Adam and Eve. They got kicked out of the garden. They hid themselves from him. That was their doing. That wasn't God's doing. And then the kicking, kicking out part was the banishment that was a consequence of sin. Then we kept seeing that all through Israel's history. They would start to follow God for a while. They would turn away again. And he kept leading them through all these difficulties to a land in which they could thrive under his authority. The increase that he's talking about here, the land would yield its harvest. It would have an increase there's a spiritual connotation that's already looking ahead to become messianic, evangelistic, and universalistic in scope, not in the way that people come to faith in Christ. In, in other words, when I say universalistic, I don't mean that God is going to save everybody on the planet. I'm saying that it's available to everybody and that everybody has to make a decision whether to accept or reject his offer. There's a, a relationship to this. There's neither Jew nor Gentile for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Do you see the evangelistic thrust already way back here in the song, pointing ahead to the, to the time when the gospel will be offered to everybody? And of course, we see that in the book of Acts. 
So how could this psalmist know that way back when he did? How could he say that this is happening as though it's already happened? The earth has yielded its harvest. That's the actual translation, past tense. Well, it's as though they were singing about something they were so sure was going to happen that they were placing themselves into the future as though they were looking back at it and they knew there was reason to rejoice because of what had transpired. We do that. We sing a song with our praise team, and I can't wait to sing it again with you all in person one day soon, I hope. Behold, he comes riding on the clouds. You know, when the trumpet sounds, you know all that one? We sing as though that is transpiring right now in our midst. And so that's exactly what this psalmist is doing. It's as if it has already happened. That's the surety with which he's writing. Where does he get this assurance from? Where does he get his confidence for a future event? Well, God certainly can implant future events in prophets, can he not? He can inspire a prophet to write about something, even though the prophet might not even know what he's writing about. But he's saying, okay, if you're telling me to write it down, I'm going to write it down. God is omniscient. He knows these things. He can inspire a writer to write these things, and be, they will be pointing to a future event. But the writer of this psalm probably already knew about God's promises, his covenants. And God always keeps his promises. The Abrahamic covenant made to Abraham that I'm going to make your descendants great. They're going to bless all the nations through your descendants and especially through the Messiah, as he did. And then through Moses, the Mosaic covenant, as we see a deliverer who's also a type, a Christ type, the deliverer Moses who shows what Jesus can be like, even though Moses was an imperfect deliverer, Christ is the perfect deliverer. And then we see the Davidic covenant, that somebody's going to sit on the throne of David and there'll be the reign of David forever and ever. And that's exactly what the Messiah did as the descendants of David came down and sat on David's throne. And then Jesus, of course, the ultimate deliverer, my deliverer cometh, who also ushered in the new covenant, the new testament through his blood shed on the cross. All of that shows that there's this continuity of plan through the entire Old Testament, including the Psalms. Verse 7, may God bless us still so that all the ends of the earth will fear him. Dr. Pipe read a couple of passages to show us how this is the intent, that all, all the ends of the earth will fear him. And I love the way it's worded because in the original Hebrew, if it was a transliteration into English, it means all the way to the earth's feet, from the tip of the earth's head all the way to the toes, to its little tippy toes. Every inch of the earth is going to be covered with the knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And this is when we start to understand that fear is a good thing as well. The stove is a good thing, is it not? And yet we can fear it, and we should. We teach our kids, ah, 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 don't touch that, hot, 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 hot. I remember our kids would say that. They would look at the stove and point at it, and they'd say, hot, 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 because they understood that it was hot, hot, hot. And yet we cook on the stove. It gives us provision and nourishment. So the stove is a good thing. So we don't say, throw out the stove. We say, yes, learn to revere it. Then the street, the street is a good thing. We need a street to get to the places where we need to go. But we need to teach our kids not to run out into the street because there are things more powerful than we are that can be harmful. The sea is a beautiful, wonderful, vast thing. You stand at the sea and you feel so small. And you should feel small because the sea is also powerful and scary because it can swallow you up and you can drown in the sea if you're not careful, and if you get caught in an undertow. So are all these things good things? Absolutely. But we need to revere and respect them 
And so fear is good. And that's the kind of fear the psalmist is talking about here. There's a corollary verse in Habakkuk 2.14 that says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And you imagine filled up as the waters cover the sea. That's a pretty big filling, is it not? Filled with the knowledge of the glory, of the recognized glory of the Lord, that everybody will recognize him. And at that point, some are going to be scared spitless. There are other verses that say, and people will shudder or they will be afraid. They will fear him. Some say that they will mourn, but others will say they'll be filled with joy. Why is that? Because there's a difference between the believer and the unbeliever. Two meanings of that. The entire earth will be filled completely with the knowledge of God's overwhelming recognized glory. So we know that it's going to be recognizable. There won't be people scratching their heads when he comes and saying, I wonder who that could be. It's clear from Scripture they're going to go, oh, 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 it's God. And then all ungodliness will have been done away with, which means he's talking about a future, future event. We have an immediate event sometimes that are talked about in the Old Testament and in the Psalms, and then we have a future event as it can be a messianic promise, and then we get all the way past that to a complete future event, which is when God finally ushers in the final chapter of his grand plan, and that's when finally evil has been vanquished, and you have a new heaven and a new earth, and he is reigning, and all of his people are reigning there together in the place where his presence and provision are available to everybody. That's why, unfortunately, and yet it is necessary, there has to be a hell. And I think it's important for us to reiterate the fact that people are given so many opportunities to see God. He's revealing himself. We've talked about this in just a few of these hits. Everybody is going to have a chance to respond to God. Everybody. God is fair. He's just. He uses a plumb line that never changes. We can trust his judgment. So if they reject God, it's because that's on them. It's not on him. John 3 if they're condemned, it's because they were condemned already by their rejection of him, by their sin. But if we choose to accept his grace, and if we trust him and say, I'm going to place my faith in him, then we're going to be a part of those people. And he has to protect his people as he's continued to do. So what do you do with sin? Where do you put it? There has to be a place for that. And that's hell. People have the key to let themselves in or let themselves out of hell. The key is the kingdom of God, just like the one that was given to Simon Peter, said, you hold the keys to the kingdom. It's the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ is the key. If you respond to the gospel, you've got the key. You can unlock it. And you can say, I choose to accept that. Boom, you've unlocked it. Now you're part of the kingdom of God because you're trusting Jesus Christ. It's important that we understand we hold the keys to hell. And people are locking themselves in by their own personal rejection of what God freely offers to everybody. I think that's an important point, and so many people really chafe at that. And I don't think we need to, because we need to understand the difference between fear for the unbeliever, fear of punishment, and there's good reason for that, or the reverential fear and the awe-inspiring appreciation of a God who's so vast that we can trust him and know that he's going to give us what will bring us the greatest satisfaction for the longest period of time. So the fear of God is not a bad thing. There's a healthy fear. God is a consuming fire hotter than any stove could be, but he's still a good thing. He is the street. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And there's only one way. That's through Jesus Christ. But that's a good thing because we need that street to get us where we need to be. And he 
has a justice that is as vast and as deep as the oceans on the earth. And that too, even though it can be fearful, is a good thing. It's an awe-inspired, reverential fear. All of those things point to something which for us can be a wonderfully good thing if we accept it as a good thing. God is for you. He's for you. He's for you. So the unbeliever versus the believer, different kinds of fear. For the unbeliever, the unbeliever really has a different kind of fear because there's probably always going to be that angst, that inner angst thinking, well, if they are right, if that person, that Christian over there is right, then when I die, maybe I'm not just going to decompose and that's it. What if my soul does live on? What's going to happen to me after that? You have reason to fear. And I don't say that to to heap guilt or shame on anybody. I say that because I'm trying to reveal to you the truth that I've seen pretty evident in Scripture, all through the Old Testament and into the New Testament, which fulfills everything in the Old Testament, especially in Jesus Christ, who shows God's love for us. So you don't need to fear that, though. You don't have to have that kind of fear. You, you shouldn't have to worry about that anxiety, what will happen once I die. You can know for certain that if something happens and your physical body passes away, you can know that you won't have to worry about that eternal separation and that you're not just going to be vaporized. You're going to be alive forever. The Bible teaches that. All of us have souls that are going to go on forever. And if we're eternally separated because of our rejection of Jesus Christ, it's going to be a horrible thing. There's good reason for fear because of that. But you can also have eternal satisfaction. And so you don't need to fear. Why is that? Because you have a reverential fear of the God who is perfectly just and perfectly loving. And if you'll trust him, if you'll just trust him and know he is for you, he's offering himself freely so that you can enjoy him forever, then that other fear goes away and it's replaced with praise because you just want to worship the God who gave himself for you so freely. Why do we not like the idea of hell? Well, it seems like a place of torture, and it gives us the wrong impression, perhaps because of paintings and media and uh, things that were taking place a long time ago that people would write about, literature. Their idea of hell makes God out to be this awful tyrant who's torturing people and almost like he enjoys it. I don't think so at all. You can see God's heart represented in so many of the scriptures that he longs for people to come to him so that they don't have to wind up in hell. That's why he sent his son. Folks, he loves us. He loves you enough to die in your place. He doesn't want to see you in hell. It's because we hold the key to hell ourselves by rejecting him. That's what puts us there. It's not a mean, judgmental, angry, whimsical God. He's a just God, and he loves you. We fail to recognize that God's ways are perfectly just, and they're higher than our ways. We don't understand everything, and that's okay. We don't have to, because he's given us enough to know how much he loves us. And we see that because of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's why the cross stands at the center of the gospel. We can't separate it. I find myself more and more, the older I get, and knowing that I'm getting closer and closer to heaven, that's the one thing that matters most, is preaching about the cross of Christ. I used to hear that from older preachers, and I think, boy, they're really stuck on this cross thing, you know. <laughs> I get it. I understand that now. It's because the cross is what makes everything else in Scripture make sense. Without the cross in the background of so many of the other passages, things wouldn't make sense. And it would be easy for us to impose our own tainted, sin-tainted perspective on God and turn him into something that he's not. Folks, 
God loves you. He loves you so much that he would send his own son to die in your place. Even while you were still sinning, he would do that. That's the kind of God I know, and I long for other people to know him as I do. His justice is as vast as the ocean. So with this reverential fear that we see in the psalm, we understand what God is like. It's awe-inspiring. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, it says in Hebrews, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence, there's that reverential fear, and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Reverential fear leads to surrender. We can trust that he's going to catch us when we jump into the deep end. I used to do that. I was a good swimmer because we had a pool in our backyard in Phoenix when I grew up, and so I got to be a pretty good swimmer. And I would try to teach our kids to trust me and say, go ahead and jump. I've got you. And uh, you can tell the difference in kids' uh, attitudes because of the way they respond to you, and you can tell that each kid has a little different way of looking at things. Um, my son was always very quick to dive right into stuff, and he had a really good spatial awareness. He was a good athlete. So it was no big deal for him. It's like, jump, okay, Whew. boom, he would do it. Uh, Katie, a little bit different. She was a little bit more hesitant, but she would do it. Callie would watch the other two, and she was much more cautious. And so it would take a little coaxing for Callie to understand that. But each kid had his or her own response to that. I think human beings are like that in our response to God. There's some of us who are a little bit curious, but we're still hesitant. We're not sure about this diving into the deep end of faith and saying, okay, here goes nothing. I'm going to hold my nose and dive in and say, God, if you're there, I sure hope you'll catch me. But you know what? That's okay. Whether we dive in right away or whether it takes a little bit of time and we finally get convinced because the Holy Spirit is continually working and coaxing us and saying, it's okay. I got you. Go ahead. I got you. Come on. Come into your, your daddy's loving arms. I've got you. <laughs> However you respond to God, I just want you to know, he is the loving father who will keep you safe even if you dive in to the deep end by faith. You can trust him. And I just keep pleading with you, please trust him. Please trust God to know that he's got you for eternity because you can trust God to lead you through his word as you get to know him better so that he'll transform you to be more like Jesus Christ. Keep reading that New Testament especially. Start with the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Get into Acts. Look to see how, how the church started to grow. The church is not a perfect place, but God is a perfect God. If you've been burned in the past, don't worry about that. Forgive, forget, move on, but look to Christ. Christ is the perfectly just and perfectly loving God who's going to blend both of those things perfectly in your own life. Trust him. Yeah, we're going to run into some people in the church that are just going to be rascallywags. You know, there are rascallywags wherever we go because we're still human and some Christians still sin. Don't let that one bad experience keep you, or maybe more than one, I'm sorry if that's happened to you, but don't let that keep you from being in community with fellow believers because we need together to press into God and find out how much love he has for his kids. Because he does. He just loves us so vastly. And after we're done, I urge you to look up on YouTube the song, The Blessing. And I think you're going to be blessed by that as well. I hope this psalm, Psalm 67, becomes another one of those great hits for you. That every time you read it from now on, you'll be reminded back there at that COVID-19 2020 year of the pandemic. 
when you started to become aware of how vast and deep God's justice and love really is, and that God had a plan reaching all the way into the future for a Messiah that would show just how just and loving God is for everybody who would believe, and that he wants to be inclusive because he makes that salvation available to every person on the planet. I hope you're one of those persons. Let's pray together. Father, it's really my desire that every person on the planet respond to your love. And I know that there are people, perhaps even within earshot, that they're listening to these words, and maybe they've been hesitant to dive into the deep end, and I pray that they'll do that. I pray that they will be so convinced of your love based on what Christ did for them, that they'll say, yes, I don't understand everything there is to know about the Old Testament, but that's okay. I'm going to trust him because I know who he is by what he did. And what he did was to send his son in my place. I pray that you will accept them into your family, that they will become a child of God, a new creation transformed by your Holy Spirit so that they'll become a part of this family of faith, a body, member of the body of Christ, and that together we'll continue to get to know you better and better and become a true community of faith that displays your goodness to all the people on the planet, as was the desire of this psalmist. And I thank you for doing that, for your great forgiveness. And if there's anybody who's just prayed that prayer, I pray that they'll sense the elation, the joy that rises up from within us when we know we've been forgiven so that they'll want to praise you and that they'll erupt in worship and say, thank you, God, for your forgiveness. And then I pray that they'll share that good news with other people that they know will be happy about their decision so they can find strength in numbers. And even though the church is imperfect, that we'll get next to one another and together press in to your goodness. Thank you for what you're going to do in the lives of people who are seeking you. And I pray these things in Jesus' name, who makes it all possible. <laughs>